had to start a little early today. I have uh, appointments today that I have to get to by 9.30. So thanks for joining me a little early. Uh, we are looking at the reawakening of our hearts and our minds to the Spirit of Christ. Jesus in John 14 unpacks some for the, the disciples of what the Spirit would do and who He is. In John 14, 16, He says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Advocate to be with you forever. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. And then He goes back to uh, in chapter 16, he begins to unpack some more about who this paraclete, this advocate, this counselor is. And he tells um, an illustration. Um, what's happening is the disciples are realizing that he's about to leave them, that he's going to experience death, and they are not handling it very well. And he says, you're going to see me again. And they're not understanding that. But he tells this analogy with a woman uh, having labor in chapter 16. And so he says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. Will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. This is the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then he says in verse 21, When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day you will ask nothing, of me, very truly I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked, not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. Now, one of the things that I've talked about over the years, and, and it's a concept that I think uh, Pastor Tim Keller unpacks extremely well is the idea that a lot of people are looking for kind of a moral reformation to be better people to be you know holier to be godlier but that's not the same as spiritual transformation uh, when people are reforming themselves rehabilitating themselves morally they're making changes, but they're not making changes at the depth of their being. They're not making deep spiritual changes. The heart is not changed. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a, uh, a Miss Manners column in the paper. My mother was really big into manners. My dad, they were always talking about our manners. And uh, this Miss Manners had a... Um, interesting thing about manners. He said, what are manners? Well, they're restraining your impulses, controlling your heart. Otherwise, you'll just live amongst people who are perpetually furious. See, reformation of the morals, rehabilitation of your morals is a fine thing because in, in many ways, uh, 
You need people to be honest. You need people to be generous, even if it's for the wrong reasons. You need people who don't lose control and fly into a rage, like road rage or something. Because you don't want to live with people who are perpetually furious with one another. But do you notice what she said? All that moral reformation is, is restraining the heart. It's controlling the heart. It's not really changing the heart. For example, almost everybody wants some form of self-control. But why do, they, why do they try to control themselves? Well, they control themselves out of fear. Because you can use fear to restrain yourself. Where you say something like, I better change or people are going to find out what I'm really like. Or many people use pride to control themselves. In other words, out of self-interest in in so that people will think well of them, so that the optics will be good, out of fear, out of pride, we can make certain changes. Now, now in a way, you can't, you can't fault that. Again, you don't want to live with perpetually furious people. And the world would be a terrible place without some form of moral restraint. Some, I mean, you might say that that in Revelation, what happens is in the days of tribulation, moral, moral restraint is lifted and it becomes a terrible, awful thing. But that's not the same as a transformation where the heart now flows with freedom. Restraint is not freedom. Freedom is radically different. It's a heart then that flows with love, with joy, with peace, patience, generosity, integrity, courage, humility. And self-control is not motivated then by fear and pride, but it's a fruit of the work of the Spirit, of the developmental work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Well, what are some of the differences of this? Well, you can reform your morality just by looking at the rules and say, I will conform. You can only be spiritually transformed as the Spirit of Christ gives you eyes to look at Christ, makes the reality of Christ real to you, and you begin to be able to tap into the resource, the power, and the presence of Christ for yourself. You can change morally by restraining your heart without Christ, but you cannot be spiritually transformed without the Holy Spirit making Christ real to you. And Paul uh, makes this really clear in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says, With unveiled faces we contemplate the glory of the Lord and are transformed from one degree of splendor to the next. What a powerful, wonderful picture that, we, that we, we take off our masks, we take off our veils. We begin to be able, because of the Spirit of Christ in us, the eyes of our hearts being opened by the Spirit. This is the Spirit of truth. This is the Advocate. He's, he's making Christ real to us and the glory of the Lord becomes more and more apparent to us and because we no longer have veils and we're no longer hiding, we're now reflecting that glory from one degree of splendor to the next. It doesn't matter how bad your past is. It doesn't matter how little you, you've known up to this point. 
The transformation comes as the Spirit makes real to you and opens the eyes of your heart to the glory of the Lord. See, you can continue restraining your heart or you can, you can have your heart transformed by being melted with the spiritual reality, with the spiritual understandings of His person and work. I, I really believe that more and more the idea of being filled with the Spirit is, is the melting of the heart, the, the breaking down of the hardness, breaking down of barriers, opening ourselves up in trust and intimacy so that Jesus becomes more and more glorious to us, but also He becomes more and more real to us. So being able to see is a union and a cease a cessation of resistance to the Holy Spirit who is trying to set your eyes on Christ instead of on your circumstances or yourself. He, Jesus is basically saying to his disciples that he wants to give them, just like he wants to give us, he wants to give us real joy. In this passage, there's a joy that Jesus gives. And it's on the night before he died in, in chapter 16, also in chapter 14, even in chapter 17, you know, Jesus is saying, I have a joy to give you. I want my joy to be complete in you. So in so many ways, of all the characteristics that the Spirit wishes to produce in you and develop in you, it's a joy that is not a joy produced by you, but it's a joy received by you. And he, he, he basically makes a promise for every believer, just as he's making a promise to those disciples, makes a promise of joy for every circumstance. But he also begins to unpack a bit in this story about the, the labor pains and the childbirth, he begins to pack, unpack a little bit about the structure. And then he also shows us how to grow in it, at least, at least somewhat. So the promise of, of Jesus' joy is that he's saying, if you come to really meet me and you come to really know me, you will have a joy that is deep and powerful and that is for now. In a way, he's saying, the more you are in union with, you know, the more you are activating your union with me, because he's, he's made his joy united to you. All the joy of Jesus now belongs to you. The one who has barriers to his joy is you, not him. His joy is for you. It is inevitable. It's the promise of Jesus. Listen what he, you know, what he says right from the beginning. He says, in a little while you will grieve, then in a little while you will see me. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn, and then in a little while your grief will be turned to joy. So at some level here, we're talking about what they were going to experience between the time of his death and his resurrection. So from that Friday to that Sunday, I'm going to die, he's saying, and you're going to weep. But when you see me, when you meet me, the resurrected Lord, you will rejoice. 
He, he doesn't say that just the emotional ones will rejoice. He's saying every, every believer, every disciple who sees the resurrected Lord and really encounters the resurrected Lord will rejoice. Now, it's important to see what he's saying here. He's not saying, when I come back and make everything right in my second coming, you will rejoice. No, he's saying, he's not saying either, on that last day when you're standing before the judgment seat, you've died and you've gone to heaven, and then you'll rejoice. No, he's saying, when you see me resurrected, you will rejoice. Well, why is that so important? Well, in some ways, it goes to the very heart of, of, of our promise of joy now. Having encountered the resurrected Christ changes everything. Um, this we see in the, in the disciples' actions and in their activities. Do you know what is so interesting? I mean, just think about this with me. Most every uh, religious leader, founder, their tomb is a shrine. Their tomb is a place of great importance. But if you do any study about Jesus' tomb or some of the things of Jesus' life and whatever... Um, it's uncertain exactly where any of these things are. And why is that? Well, because the disciples had a risen Christ. You know, if, if he had died and if he was in that tomb, then the tomb would become a shrine and it would become an important place. But to them, the tomb was unimportant. They didn't mark it. They didn't make a shrine out of it because Jesus was alive. I mean... Jesus is saying here that Christianity does not only promise incredible joy in the by and by. He doesn't say, you'll see me in heaven and you'll rejoice, or you'll see me on the last day. He says, this is it. Everybody, you'll have this joy. It will come. It has to come. And then he makes this illustration of the woman. He says, joy is like a woman in labor. When her time has come, she has the child. Now, I've watched very intimately uh, my wife give birth to two children. And I remember her watching her labor and her pain. And there's this one thing that was really true. And it's kind of a bad story on me. But when the time comes for the labor to come, there's nothing that can really hold it back. I was in seminary when Anna was born, her second child. And I was writing my paper and she goes, Mike, I'm having, you know, I'm having contractions. I'm like, well, can you hold on? Just, I just got a page or two left and I'll be through with my last paper in seminary. She goes, Mike, the pain is coming. The baby is coming. Get me to the hospital now. And so you begin to realize that when that, when that the labor pain is coming, you can't say, well, hold on till I finish my last page of my paper. Uh, you can't say, hold on even five minutes. And so what Jesus Christ gives us is this picture of a woman in labor as the illustration of joy. And what he's saying is, if you actually meet me, if you really encounter me, the risen Lord Jesus, not a philosophy, not a morality, but you encounter and have a personal relationship with me, then by the presence of the Spirit of Christ and by the reality of the resurrected Christ, you will have joy. It's inevitable. It's not, it's not you trying to produce it for Him. It's Him joyful in you. 
And uh, I mean, the Bible really goes over and over this. It's so convicting in many ways what the Bible has to say about joy. You know, that, that joy for the believer is not optional. And, and so what happens to many of us is we, we're so focused on how disappointed we are, or we're so focused on what we want to accomplish, or what has to take place, or we, we set ourselves in terms of satisfaction and fulfillment dependent on things, that, things and people that we have no right or ability uh, to control over outcomes which are beyond our control. And we say, I'll be happy if, or I'll be joyful if, or we limit, in a sense, with the hardness of our heart, and especially armoring our heart with self-protection from pain. We limit our ability to experience His promised joy. This is the whole work of the Holy Spirit, to to get you to see Jesus resurrected and then to rejoice in that. Um, Do you remember the very first miracle of Jesus? It was a wedding, a feast at Cana. This is the beginning of his public ministry. I mean, when you start start your public ministry, when you first preach your first sermon, in in some ways you're, you're, you're unveiling the essence of what you're all about. And so here is Jesus. What does he do to get across to people what he was all about? Well, he didn't raise the dead. He didn't walk on water. He didn't heal the sick. He created 150 gallons of incredible wine to move a party to a whole new level. What what do you think he's saying? (laughs) Uh, I mean, he's saying, I am the Lord of the feast. I am the Lord of joy. He, he brings the wine to the party. He brings the joy. He is the joy of, of your life. And what about when Pentecost came? When the Spirit came and baptized the disciples? What about that? How was it inaugurated? How did it look when these disciples were full of the Holy Spirit? What did they say about them? They said, these people are drunk. So Christianity, not just the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of the, of the church, the beginning of the Spirit-filled life, what does the Bible say? Well, it says that they, Jesus began with the joy at a party. He's the Lord of the feast. The Spirit comes down in such an awesome way that people, so filled with the Holy Spirit that, that they're being accused of being drunk at nine in the morning. You know, Paul was writing to the Thessalonians. He said, you became followers of the Lord. He's talking to them about their conversion. He says, you became followers of the Lord for you received the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You know what it means then to become a Christian? I I meet people a lot of times and I say, are you a Christian? They say, well, I'm trying to be. Or they say, I guess I'm a Christian. Well, you might say, well, what, what is a Christian then? Well, if, if we're tracking with Jesus, it's not just to believe Jesus is the Son of God. It's not just to believe he died on the cross. It's not simply to believe in a kind of a conceptual, assenting way that he rose from the dead. Think about this. The devils believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they're still devils. What's the difference between a devil and a Christian? 
Because the devils know he's the son of God. The devils know he died on the cross. The devils know he was raised from the dead. But they have no joy in it. The difference between a Christian and the devil is joy. <laughs> I mean, the very essence of faith, there has to be this, this kernel, this underlying note of joy. Or it's not real faith. Do you see? I mean, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom becomes a reality by the presence of his spirit in your life. But Jesus says, it's like a man who discovers a treasure buried in a field. And when he discovers it, he sells everything he has and goes with joy and buys that field. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of the church, the beginning of the Christian life, the kingdom of God itself, Jesus continually says, is a power that descends upon you. I mean, the kingdom of God for you and me is not only a power, but a person, the Spirit of Christ, descending upon us with joy, with the joy of the Lord in us and the joy of the Lord for us. And then he sends us out into the world to bring his joy to change the world by doing the will of God, by bringing what is true of heaven and making it here and near on earth. And so, you know, in a sense, what is the power of the kingdom? How do you know you're in the kingdom? It's not the way you're dressed. It's not the way you look. It's not the way you eat. In Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, in a way, if you're serious about the Holy Spirit, if you're serious about Jesus, then one of the places you need to look and, and do a diagnosis is, am I experiencing joy? The devils believe, but they take no joy in it. A Christian believes, and it's the source of joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. See, the Holy Spirit wants to fill you today with a tidal wave of joy and then send you out into a a perpetually furious world with the joy of the Lord as your strength. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. It's an amazing picture when you think about where does, you know, where does this joy come from? Well, the, the hour of the woman Jesus talks about, that her hour has come to deliver the child. And he spoke himself about his hour. So Jesus is really talking about the cross as his labor, as his delivery. And what he endured, um, he, he endured eternity of punishment because he who knew no sin became sin for us. It wasn't just a few hours. It was as if it were an eternity of sin that he had to pay the curse. He had to become the curse. He had to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. But what he says is, and this is so beautiful, and I, I remember this in the birth of my children, that having gone through the labor pains, it was all worth it when the baby is laid in, your, in, in the mother's arms. And he says, is the pain forgotten? He's not saying it's forgotten. 
The pain just doesn't control you. It's the joy of the baby that controls you. I, I, I remember after our first child, I'm like, you really want to go through this again? And she said, yes. <laughs> yes. Because it's as if a woman forgets how painful it was because the reward is so great. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? That he was willing to labor for all eternity for you. Forsaken of the Father. Destroyed even though innocent so that he could hold you in his arms. Setting aside the pain, you were the joy. You were the reward. I, I think we get this all backwards in that we think somehow if we can perform, if we can just clean up our act, if we can just do a little better, then Jesus can rejoice in us. And that's opposite of the way the gospel is, is, is taught. He's asking you to recognize his joy in you. And instead of trying to measure up and perform, that you would just say, I'm the baby in Jesus' arms that made him forget his pain. I'm the child he delivered and is so proud of and is so rejoicing in and doesn't hold the pain anymore because his reward is that baby. You're that baby. This is why you must be spiritually born again. It's that new birth. Oh, he can rejoice. He can have hope. He can have love. He can have such immense joy because, because he went into labor to deliver you. And only the Holy Spirit can make that real to you. The demons believe but have no joy. You and I believe, and joy becomes the essence of our life, inevitably. In Jesus' name, amen.